This is Coda Radio, episode 313 for June 14th, 2018. Welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and its related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this show goes on, but our host, our host is established in the stormy bayous of Florida. It's Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Greetings from Thor's apartment. Yeah, it really is the, the the hammer of thunder over there. You might hear a little bit in the background from time to time. Uh, apparently, it's the apocalypse in Florida. Are you going to be okay? Are you going to survive this? If I don't, I'll get eaten by alligators. So it's you know very green, <laughs> very ecologically efficient. Yeah, you know, it is the circle of life. Well, Mr. Dominic, we have a great show. So we're going to get to our traditional follow-up and feedback. And then later on in the show, the CEO of GitLab is going to join us. Sid Brande will come on and he'll talk about GitLab and what they're doing and some new things that are in the work. And I think it's going to be a fascinating chat in light of recent news. But before we go, there's some things that I have to give Mike a hard time about. Some traditional follow-up here on the show. And uh, probably to keep things uh, con- continuous, you know, continuity, I suppose, we should start with... Uh, a follow-up on last week's episode where Mr. Dominic had a a strong reaction to Apple's WWDC, but you had a chance to sit down, read some of the docs, and burn everything to the ground. Yeah, I, I still think the videos are terrible. I just want to put that front and center. But what I was impressed with when I actually got to look at some of the session videos in the docs um, really was ARKit 2. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know if I'm impressed with Metal. I find it intriguing that they're deprecating OpenGL in favor of Metal. Did you did you catch that little? little yeah. Oh yeah. There? I did. Oh yeah. I caught that. I definitely so, caught that. Yeah. I'm really torn it, on that because Metal does seem like it, it lets people developers accomplish some really great stuff, but at the at the cost of industry standardization. Right, which is weird because they're really doing all they can to make Swift like not an Apple language, right? To make it kind of it's an open source standard. Uh, but on the graphics side, Metal is completely proprietary. Yeah. OpenGL never has been great on the Mac platform. I, is that Apple's fault? Or, yes, it is, actually. Never mind. I think so. It's hard to say. But, yeah, so Metal aside, um, ARKit, yeah, I, I, agree. I think, actually, the Mac got some of the best stuff in this last round. There's no good Mac hardware, but that's a separate yeah. issue. That's a separate issue. I mean, I actually updated my MacBook Pro to Mojave, which you have to say with the little... Oh, you did? Really? You really rolled the dice, huh? I rolled the dice. Uh, it's Dark mode looks terrible on apps that aren't ready for it. Shocker. But the updates to Xcode are really, really nice, uh, particularly if you are in any way an Xcode user. Check out the session video for LLDB and new debugging tools. There's a lot of just like cool stuff added to Xcode. Now, if you've ever used like a JetBrains IDE or like, you know, Visual Studio proper, you'll be like, okay, so this is features that they should have had <laughs> years ago. But the fact that they have them now is is really good. In, in particular, 
just the the command line interface on the uh, on the console in Xcode is just awesome. It's yeah. it's really um, it's really catching up. I understand from the technical session what they're doing with the whole machine learning and um, kind of the machine learning. I remember we talked about the machine learning on the iMac Pro potentially uh-huh. using Swift to train your models. Okay. I now get what they mean that for. You are not going to build a giant backend service that's like an AI assistant. What you might build, though, is like a little help, like a, like a help function or some other kind of tangential or additional functionality into an app on an Apple platform. And if that's all you're doing, if machine learning and AI, and I'm starting to hate the term machine learning because apparently everything is machine learning now, this is a not so painful path, except for the big thing that I know Chris is going to jump all over. The hardware is just, you would not do this, right? You you would not generally want to train machine learning models on yeah, any yeah. any of the common Mac hardware today. I mean, maybe an iMac no, Pro, and, sure. And- and you wouldn't really expect the story to be, well, use an eGPU. Oh, and yeah, we'll get NVIDIA. Yeah, we'll get NVIDIA working in there. But for now, just use an eGPU. That's not really the answer. And the answer also can't be buy an iMac Pro. And the, the, the thing is, the iMac Pro is now damn near 200 days old. So even their newest machine is old. Um, that is not competitive. And so they want to get into this VR, AR. They want to get into machine learning. They want people to look at Mac OS Mojave as a professional workstation. They got to close the gap on the hardware. They got to fix the MacBook keyboard and they got to get newer cost-effective machines out that developers can start to experiment with. They almost have to go back a little bit to their roots when they were trying to convince developers to come over to the Mac again. Um, and so I, the reason why I thought WWDC was decent is because I could see the groundwork. I could see the software groundwork being laid. I don't see any hardware suggestions or hints, but that's not necessarily indicative of anything. But that's why I thought, doesn't really impact my day-to-day life, not going to change how I do work, but if I use the Mac platform and, and iOS to an extent, because their, their automation stuff with, uh, their, with their workflow um, yeah. version of shortcuts, I think is powerful. So I, if, I, if I followed that platform closely or was looking forward to improvements to that platform, I would consider I got something at least to value out of WWDC. If they don't answer it, though, with a hardware component soon, it's still half the story. Yeah, I would even add, too, that if you're not like a graphics development person, which I am not, though I'm having to learn more metal than I would like, metal is actually... It kind of the unsung hero of this WWDC, I think, when you look at the technical docs. For instance, Core Animation, which is, if you don't know, uh, it's a high-level framework. Basically, a, a common pattern, let's say, would be, you know, animation with duration, blah, blah, blah. Here's a, a C block with your animation. That's obviously the Objective-C syntax. What would happen in the past is that would be a Core Animation call which would call into the core animation API, which in turn would actually call into OpenGL for you. So you needed no knowledge of <laughs> OpenGL. And it, right, it did it for, right. just like Grand Central Dispatch. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Right. Grand Central, it's an abstraction, right? Just like Grand Central Dispatch uh, is and was a, an abstraction over threading. Yep. Core animation is now not calling into OpenGL, is my understanding. It's calling directly into Metal, which does seem to have some significant performance increases. I think going forward, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you're looking at AR solutions, the investment of learning metal, which is a, which is a pretty, I w- I'm, I've been doing some uh, some research into it. 
thick and juicy piece of API is probably going to pay off big time. And of course, there was a little carrot for me that I didn't know about it. Oh, what was it? Improvements to God's one true programming language. Oh, really? Yeah. Objective, Objective C got C some quietly <laughs> been getting improvements. I really? love it. That's good. You know what? That must be because there's still some diehards in Apple that are using it, right? It's got to be one they're... guy like me saying, I don't care. What's that switch for? <laughs> Get it out of here. I love it. You know what? Maybe it was a birthday present to you because uh, rumor has it you and Donald Trump share similar birthday weeks. So happy yeah, birthday, mine was Mr. Yesterday. Donald. <clears throat> yeah, Trump's is today. So uh, you Daily and Donald uh, get together, have a little birthday party this weekend, and uh, Apple gave you a gift, and that was some modest improvement to Objective-C. What was it in particular? Uh, it's just some basically better interop with Swift, a few more. They've been getting it the whole time, <laughs> but a few, yeah, I know. It's A lot of it has to do with interopping with Swift and being able to like not be completely foreign. I mean, the reality of the situation is if you're starting a new iOS app, you probably should just do it in swift although there was a great post i read and i completely agree and we should have put it in the show notes but i forgot oh where objective c is the one true programming language and my favorite part compared to swift is that i didn't have to write this post so see i'm not the only one yeah speaking of people that are writing posts for us just kind of tangentially related to what we were just talking about rogue amoeba long time really high quality apple software developers um, that have made third-party apps for the mac for ages I uh, have, have released a post today called On the Sad State of Macintosh Hardware, and they basically lay it out there that it's devastating to them that there is so many Mac, so much Mac hardware that's out of date that they're seriously concerned as a Mac software shop. And if you look at the Mac Rumors buying guide, every machine is essentially a don't buy with the exception of the iMac Pro, which is marked as a neutral. And just for... Uh, it's a $5,000 plus dollar neutral. Yeah. Yeah, and for just for note, the Mac Mini today, one thousand three hundred and thirty-seven days old. That's how long ago it was updated. The Mac Pro has been more than a year, four hundred and thirty-six days. MacBook Pro also more than a year, three hundred and seventy-four days. The MacBook Pro hasn't been updated for three hundred and seventy-four days. And they say it's very difficult to recommend the current crop of Macs to customers, and that's deeply worrisome to us as a Mac-based software company. For our internal needs, we wound up purchasing and used we wound up purchasing and used hardware for testing, rather uh, rather than optimizing to compromise heavily on a new machine. This isn't good for Apple, nor is it what we want. So I I uh, I I thought we should just mention that in the light of WWDC, there's still huge problems, and now it's the hardware stuff, and so that's the reality of that. And it's not just us that's bitching about it; it's other people. No, it really isn't. I mean, I I was actually pretty surprised that they didn't. At least like spec bump, at least the iMac Pro, thinking, you know what, this is your your one really viable, you know, contender to say like the high end Dells and and uh you know basically everybody else, right? HP has high end machines, Dell has high end machines. Uh but they didn't do it, like nothing. So it's Yeah, seems- I was recently I was recently just shopping here, you know, because Linux Academy is putting in an OBS system. And it's like, well, what do we use? You know, what, what is the go-to high-end PC that's guaranteed to work with Linux? Um, and, you know, I run through all the usual suspects, and there's different compromises with each set. Uh, and it's uh, we've reached a point now where the Mac isn't even a consideration. Well, 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're doing the show right now 100% on Linux, right? I'm on Pop and yeah. you're on... Uh, what, yeah. what do you want still, KDE? Kubuntu 1804, all Kubuntu the way, baby. Kubuntu 1804, yeah. Rocking it on all the machines. All the machines we're even routing through audio, all on Kubuntu end-to-end. So, yeah. That is... Uh, Speaking of remote, I am remote this week. I'm at Texas. I think I mentioned I'm at Linux Academy. I'm at just just outside of the Fort Worth area. And uh, I, I have been exposed now pretty heavily this week to a company that believes pretty deeply in remote work. I'd say about half their staff, maybe more, maybe as much as 60%, 70% of their staff are remote at Linux Academy. And they've for competitive reasons and all kinds of reasons, including some people just work better that way. You and I have gone back on this, back and forth on this, because I've been working remote now since May 27th. I have been on the road since May 27th doing all of the shows uh, and doing all of running the business remotely. And it's given, and then coming here to, and then coming here to Linux Academy, this is my last stop before I start the long haul home. And uh, it's really given me perspective on this remote work thing. And so if, it didn't make me smile. I don't know what would. Yesterday, Mr. Dominic tweets, at Chris LAS is going to have a lot of fun making fun of me on the next Coda Radio because I've already given up the on-site work thing. <laughs> so, Mr. Dominic, here we go. John Kerry of the remote work flip-floppers. Flipping and flopping on the remote work. And uh, I want to know what happened because you were going all in. I mean, you had an office building you were going down with. You had people there on site. Yeah. You had, it, you had you know, an air conditioning machine making ticking noises in the background. You were all in. Yeah, people will be clear so that that won't be uh, too common anymore. You know, it. it's funny because I flip-flopped on this a few times, and it's always for the same reasons, right? What occurred to me in this latest adventure is that limiting yourself to one physical location creates all kinds of weird logistical problems where being remote doesn't and people really especially developers really don't do their best work you know chained to a desk nine to five every day boy if that hasn't been an adjustment for right. me because i've been working at a desk setting up a machine and i hear a lot of different conversations around me and i have really lost my ability to tune that out right and and, and you know the problems i thought i was solving by going on on site are actually solved in a much uh perhaps more brutal way like if someone screws something up you should just fire them like immediately mm, mm. Uh, where, you know, bait, remote because remote requires, and I think this is going to be something that some people are going to have a hard time, but it requires a level of kind of self accountability and self management that maybe some folks don't have. Okay. But the reality is someone who's like a bad dev is going to be a bad dev on site or off site. Right. There's no, yeah. Yeah. No difference. And, and, and maintaining a site is just expensive. Yes. Now, it's one yeah. thing to have like a small space to have like an office if you need to meet a client or, you know, whatever. But to every time you hire someone, you need more desks, more, you know, obviously remote employees, you're still buying them uh, computers generally. But it's just like the the ongoing process of growing becomes incredibly costly with the space. And it it, it doesn't seem... How can I put this? It's not money spent on the core product in a way. It's, it's like, not money spent well. And the yeah. advantages of having a centralized location, you know, I, I'm in Plant City, Florida right now. Tampa or Orlando, Florida would be different to have an office, but the cost would be at least double. 
Mm. And that's just to be part of that community and whatever. But everything's more expensive, right? It's like before we were in New Jersey, an office in Manhattan may have been more beneficial, but like would have been like 10 times as much. Yeah. So when you're small, uh, I've come to the realization that your main strength is actually uh, flexibility. And being tied down to one address is is not flexible. Mm. I'll be clear. What I'm saying is it's not that. Go ahead. No, I follow, go finish it up because I follow what you're saying. It's like the, the being small, you have that dynamic flexibility. You can pivot. You can make diff- drastic changes and make big decisions. But when you add the cost of real estate or rent or just a contract, it slows you down there. Exactly. And, you know, I still see an advantage in having a small space um, that you can meet a customer at, do an event at. Like we're actually, uh, I don't know if you know this, Chris, I tweeted this too, but you only t- get me on the gotcha tweets. <laughs> uh, uh, the Mad Botter is now sponsoring the uh, Plant City Software Development Meetup. So on the 21st, after work, we're having people over and we're catering coffee and a couple uh, treats there. Oh, um, and in our office. Yeah, on the 21st, yeah, yeah in our offices yeah. in Plant City. So that should be, uh, yeah, the Thursday, if that's 21st or 22nd, I'm not sure. Uh, that is one use for a space, right? It's, it's good to have, you know, if your team's still relatively local, you can have meetings. But the other reality is like, I don't know if you know this, the economy is really good right now and hiring people is like super hard. Mm-hmm. So saying you must work in Plant City, Florida is not super effective. Yeah, okay. That's all fair. Um, <clears throat> what I've noticed that Canonical and now Linux Academy seem to do is they do seem to drop some cash on like large meetup events or summits or sprints or whatever the companies happen to call them. And they they bring people in and have them work together for for intense periods of time, um, and then they go back and go back and work remote. And they seem to do that a few times a year. What are your thoughts on something like that? Is that is that feasible in a in a, in a smaller operation? Well, I think the smaller you are, the more budget constrained you are. Um, I could see a situation where you're renting like a shared office type of space or indeed doing what I'm doing, you are keeping a, a small physical office. Um, then yeah, I could see that making sense, you know, maybe once a quarter. Hmm. You know, we should ask our guest about this. So why don't we bring on Sid Sobrande? He actually is a pretty, a pretty big advocate for remote work. And I'd be curious how they do that at GitLab. So we'll get there, but let's, let's get Sid. So without further ado, joining us on the line from GitLab, co-founder and chief executive officer is Sid Sedenbrande. Sid, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How'd I do on that pronunciation of the last name? I just kind of took a shot at it. Good enough for me. <laughs> well, thank you for being generous. I appreciate that. So, Sid, uh, we absolutely wanted, we've actually been wanting to chat with you forever uh, because uh, Mike is a GitLab user as part of uh, his day-to-day business. But also, awesome. obviously... Thanks, thanks for that. Well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> but with the recent, the yeah, yeah, it's actually it's very popular with our audience. Um, and so, with the big news from Microsoft recently, we thought this would just be a great opportunity to chat with you. Uh, and I, we were just talking about remote work, and uh, so I want to get to there in a moment. But maybe we should just kind of back up a little bit. Uh, so, GitLab is famous for being an open core company. And uh, I thought, I thought if I recall the first time I'd ever seen you talk about it, I thought I recalled you talking about GitLab as an open source company. And then I noticed sort of a tone change to an open core company. So would you, would you kind of explain how the GitLab model works for us? 
Yeah, for sure. So GitLab started as an open source project by my co-founder Dimitri in 2011. And we, uh, uh, we built a company around it and we tried to finance that company in different ways. Um, we tried to donations, we tried consulting, we tried support contracts, um, but it all wasn't sustainable. And all the while that the popularity of the open source project was increasing. So there was more and more time going into release management, performance updates, uh, bug fixes, all these things that you have to do. So we needed a better model. So we settled on licensed software. We uh, introduced GitLab Enterprise Edition, which is paid and uh, proprietary. And so we changed from saying we were open source to open core. There's both an open source edition and a proprietary edition of GitLab. And uh, that's what we, uh, that's what open core means. I see. Thank you. So the other off the wall question I had is, is it true, the rumors that uh, before you started GitLab, you creational submarine company, is that a true thing? Yeah, it's a true thing. Uh, I was the first employee and, and, and incorporated a company that uh, still makes the most submarines every year. No kidding. That is, can, can, that is, the, that is the neatest little, like, I, I would love to, I didn't even know a personal submarine was something I could have. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's, um, if, if you want, you can have a trailerable, but it, it really is, is uh, uh bit expensive it's about two million dollars and uh, most people that own it have a, a large boat to uh, store it on sure sure boy i so there's things to aspire to is what you're telling me i i like For that sure. so i i guess uh, also when i was digging through sort of your background it looks like uh, you have some or used you used to at least have some love for uh, ruby yeah i used to be a ruby on rails developer now uh, I won't hold a, hold that against you in any way as, uh, as the show goes on. But do you? I suppose these days not much chance to do much Ruby. No, it's uh, I went from programming code to maybe programming some processes in the company. I uh, I do commit regularly uh, to our handbook. Oh, okay, so um, let's talk about the company for a little bit. So let's talk about GitLab. How how big is GitLab now? It's uh, 300, 300 people. Holy smokes. The last number I saw was somewhere in the hundreds. That's that's amazing. So these last few weeks must have been uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, it was amazing. After uh, GitHub got acquired, um, we saw a lot of love for GitLab, a lot of people migrating, but especially a lot of people giving GitLab another look and, uh, and really mm. being amazed by where we've come since a few years ago. I think both Mike and I really liked... Uh, the messaging approach that GitLab had around the GitHub uh, purchase, you guys really seemed on top of it, like almost like you were waiting for this to happen. Like you had that stuff up your sleeve, ready to pull out. Can you can you explain that a little bit to us? There were rumors in the week before that they might have been acquired, and uh, uh, so we uh, we started, started preparing. Working. And uh, <laughs> well, I think I think we did well in in the preparations. And yeah. over the weekend, we saw people moving to GitLab, and uh, it yeah. was great to see that that response. I'm looking at a tweet here from Zach Kelling, uh, who tweets, "Okay, I get it. GitLab's product leapfrog GitHub. I'm shocked how incredibly nice, thoughtful, and well designed it is. Fantastic building tools, incredible Kubernetes support, building CI/CD, security testing, project management, and support features. Moving to GitLab." That, that is really what we love to see. Not people moving because 
they're hating on Microsoft or GitHub mm -hmm. um, because I, I think Microsoft is going to do a good job being a, a maintainer of GitHub, but really moving because they they like a single product for the whole DevOps cycle. Yeah. One thing that's very attractive uh, for my company using GitLab is that we can host it ourselves. Do you, do you have any, do you see that as a competitive advantage for you or is that kind of a, an offshoot of the main product or do you see that as the main product? Yeah, no, we, we have two products, or we have one product and two ways to consume it. Either you use our.com or you self-host it. But it's, uh, the self-hosting is a really important part, not in the least because it, uh, it means you have that freedom. Even if you're using .com, you always have an export button and you can move to your own hosted instance or uh, gitlabhost.com or somewhere else where you want to, uh, where you want to be. Yeah. Now, uh, back to the acquisition of Microsoft. When you heard that, uh, when the rumors first started circulating, were you concerned? It seems like it takes a, essentially a competitor and sort of supercharges them with Microsoft's bank account. Yeah, so they're going to have a bigger bank account. Um, and um, I think for us, the hardest thing will be that they'll have Microsoft's uh, Salesforce. Like Microsoft speaks to a lot of companies uh they they, they sure. regularly deal at the c level in those companies and they can now like add this additional uh offering to that to their to their bundles and and they're they're famous for having a good bundling strategy so that's going to be harder for us what's going to be better for us is that um they're going to be focused on on integrating with microsoft and azure and all those other things and uh I think for us, uh, we're going to go full steam ahead, and we'll keep releasing every single month, and and keep adding great features for the whole uh, for that whole DevOps lifecycle. Now, a little birdie tells me, speaking of some of those features, that there's something called Auto DevOps that's coming along, and I was wondering if you could share a little details about Auto DevOps. Yeah, so we're really really bullish on auto devops on a week from now uh, june 22nd uh, we'll release gitlab 11.0 and auto devops will be generally available and what you do is you just push your code and gitlab does the rest it will build your code run your tests check the quality do static application security testing, dependency scanning, license management, container scanning. It will boot up a review app, kind of like a staging environment per merge request, dynamic application security testing, and deploy it. It will do browser performance testing, and it will do monitoring of all the vital metrics. So all of that just by pushing your code, nothing to configure. Uh, we think that is the future, and, and we're really excited about uh, having it out wow. to the world. Yeah. That's great timing. That's coming pretty soon. Yeah. In a week, the 22nd. <laughs> oh, very neat. Well, I look forward to hearing about it or seeing about it when it launches. So Auto DevOps, I, I am, I'm not familiar, I, I, but it sounds like, uh, it sounds like a fantastic yeah. addition. And top of that, haven't you? Go ahead, Mike. No, I'm pretty deep into using the current continuous integration tools in the uh, community edition of GitLab. Is there a breakpoint between Auto DevOps and the Enterprise Edition? Um, or is that just it, everybody's getting that? Everybody's getting auto DevOps. Um, That's awesome. Okay. The only thing is that the security features right now are an ultimate edition. So they're not part of uh, the community edition. I think all the other things, uh, maybe except the license management, is, uh, is part of it. So you huh. just push your code and uh, you get your review app, you get the monitoring, everything. So can we talk about the additions for a moment? Because I noticed uh, that you've recently made uh, 
for open source projects and for schools, some of the high-end plans are free now. So can you talk a little bit about the reasoning behind that and what the different plans are? Because I'm, I'm a noob to this stuff. Yeah, so we have a lot of universities uh, using GitLab already, and we wanted to make sure that those uh, the students, they train with all of our features. So when they go out into the workplace, they tell their new employer, like, why aren't you using all these awesome GitLab features that are available that many people are not yet aware of? That's interesting. So it, it was a barrier for them. It was a barrier. Uh, universities are, don't have big budgets, so they're not like paying for software a lot. So we figured we'd just uh, give this away. And also open source projects, uh, some open source projects like GNOME and Debian, they insist on using open source. So they switch to GitLab and they're using core. But some open source projects are uh, pragmatic about whether they uh, run on proprietary software. And for them, we, we, we want to make it uh, easy for them to also use all those security features. We're passionate about open source and we want to help them in any way uh, we can. And uh, there's different plans for, for GitLab. So there's a great core edition that's totally free, both if you download it or if you use private repos on gitlab.com. And we have three different tiers uh, from starter, which is four bucks per user per month, all the way to ultimate, which is 99 bucks per user per month. Ah. So do you kind of see this as a type of contribution back to open source then? So ultimate for free, we see that as a bit of a contribution, but what we don't want to give is the impression that we think this is an alternative to having a really great open source edition. We understand that there's lots of open source projects that only want to be based on open source, and we'll keep listening to GNOME and Debian and all the other projects who are in the process of switching, and we'll mm. make sure that Core will always be a great way to, to run an installation like that. Do you think that could be a market that starts to grow and, and maybe maybe as a result in somewhat to, of this Microsoft purchase, that, that core group of open source developers who maybe have fairly large projects, but they do have that, I guess, moral ground, you might call it, where it has to be open source, but they need something that has enough features. seems like there could be some contention there. I don't think it's going to be a problem. I think Microsoft has shown it's it's a it's a new company. They're not pulling the tricks of the past. Uh, so mm -hmm. I don't. I think that companies and organizations are contemplating a move to GitHub will not be phased. Um, there are, however, a lot of big open source projects that say we're not going to go to someone else's software as a service ever. We want to be in control. We want to run our own website. And examples are like Ruby and uh, the Apache Foundation. And GNOME and, and Debian, and, and some of those are now moving to GitLab. And we think for, if you want to self-host, GitLab is the logical choice, and, and we want to stimulate that as much as we can. Yeah, I was, uh, I was just uh, fantasizing about some news announcement one day uh, where the Linux kernel moves off of GitHub to a self-hosted GitLab instance. And I was trying to think of what would they need from a GitLab core to pull that off. And I wonder if everything is there yet. And... Would you be comfortable maybe contributing things to the open source version that haven't been there in the past to meet those needs if it meant a significant maybe set of projects might come over? Yeah, we're open to that. I don't think the Linux kernel considers themselves hosted on GitHub at this moment. I think mm. they're, they're hosted on self-hosted Git and they're sending patches uh, by email. 
Um, yeah. If they ever wanted to move to GitLab, uh, we'd be very open to talking about open sourcing certain features. And with GNOME and Debian, it was the same. We open source certain features that they uh, they they thought were absolutely essential. That uh, that's that's a great point. Uh, well put. So how common so, is it? Um, go ahead. No, I was going to switch to remote work, but if you got more, keep going. How common is it, is it for someone to switch from the open source uh, edition that I'm currently on to the, to, I won't say proprietary, but to the paid edition? Yeah, so far about 6% of the people have done that. And we think... Uh, six? Six or 60? Uh, zero six. So oh. uh, only only yeah. five to 6% have sure. actually yeah. switched to a paid edition. And we see it increases as the organizational size increases and as they adopt more of the different features of uh, GitLab. So, sure. Mike, if, probably you're not switching yet because you're you might be a smaller organization. If you were I'm, using, yeah, if you were using the same amount of features that with like a thousand people, I think it would be a no-brainer to switch to a paid edition. And, and is that process? Because uh, you know we've done a, a few upgrades. We tested it out for a while. Is that process a pretty easy turnkey process? I'm thinking in particular because we have, I know a lot of our listeners are independent development shops, consultants that maybe have 30, 40 people and are thinking about maybe it's time to step up to the, uh, the ultimate edition. Yeah, so um, it is a very easy process. It's uh, either you just install the new packages and you import a backup. Um, but if you've downloaded GitLab recently, you'll probably have Enterprise Edition by default with all the core features, uh, but you have that installation, and then it's really a question of just entering a license key and you're done. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah, that is great. I like that. Um, so Mike and I have had an on and off relationship with remote work. He and I both, uh, have small businesses and we have a handful of, uh, contractors and employees, and we've, we've really tried to experiment with this remote work and we've had this ongoing multi-year conversation now with our audience about it, who are also experimenting. And so when uh, I was uh, kind of doing some research on you before the show, I saw several different talks where uh, you sort of were a proponent of remote work. And I, you mentioned over 300 employees or uh, staff, how many of those roughly, if you can share are remote and can you, can you uh, share your thoughts on that? Yeah, so 100% of our team members are remote, and we're now, uh, we have people in 40 countries. Wow. Wow. And, and um, I'm curious, do you supplement the remote work with, uh, like, get-together events like summits or sprints where you bring people together and, and have teams working together for a bit and they go back home? How does that work? We do a summit every uh, nine months, and we uh, try to go to a nice location. Last one was in Crete, in Greece, and the next one is in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and it's for a week. Oh. And we don't put <laughs> you in a nice. conference room for the entire week, but we, we try to go out and do things together. Um, right, which legitimately is team building, too. Yeah, we think that hey, if we're going to all that effort and expense to get together, we shouldn't do things that we could do remote. Like watching a presentation, we should do things that you can only do in person, like visiting something together. Yeah. Um, and it's all about getting to know uh, your fellow team members and the members of the, the GitLab community. What's, but like every nine months is way too little. So what we also do is, is a lot of like structured social interaction. When you, when you spend one and a half hours every day driving to work or, or going to work, 
there at work, you have kind of unstructured social interaction just by virtue of people walking around they'll talk to each other we don't have that so we facilitate that we have different things we have things called virtual coffee breaks we just schedule time on someone's calendar they understand the concept and you you can talk about work but you don't have to it's kind of an just chit chatting what facilitates that conversation it's google calendar and zoom okay and we, everyone Simple. that joins the co- company uh, has, to, has to start with 10 so that they get accustomed to it. We have a team call every day, and it's uh, five minutes of announcements and then 25 minutes of people talking about their life outside of work. Sometimes it's about a certain subject. Today, we had breakout rooms. Suddenly, you're in a room with just a subset of the people. That's a great, um, great way to kind of get to know each other, get to know each other's hobbies. Huh. For people that have like GitLab people around them, we also like pay for them to organize a meetup. And if you want to go visit other GitLab team members, we we pay for the travel that's involved. Really? Wow. So there is a bunch of interesting ideas in there that I'd never considered. That that daily call strikes me as almost borderline too much though, like in terms of taking productivity. Is that something that is debated a lot or have you found that that you just stick to it and it works? Yeah, I think you you don't want to be too afraid of of hurting productivity. Um, people, what we always say is we don't monitor your hours; we monitor your results. And sure. and so we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna force you to be in that call. It's it's optional. Like almost every meeting at GitLab, if you don't want to be there, you don't have to be there. Oh, and if it's not interesting to you, it's totally fine to go do something else uh, while you're while you're logged into a meeting. Oh. Um, and, That's uh, a nice balance. I, li- I like that balance you've struck there. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and then we, the we, other we, thing that I've the, uh, go ahead. Yeah, people new to GitLab sometimes say, "I'm going out for lunch," and everyone says, "Well, have a great lunch, but you don't have to tell us. Like you're you're the boss of your day. If you want to go to the gym during the day when it's quiet or to the supermarket, that's the freedom of remote work, and you should embrace it." Boy, that really does sound appealing. So the other thing you said in there that. Uh, is a new concept, and it sounds expensive to me as a business owner, but I, I like it, is y- you'll pay for the travel if they want to go meet another team member. That How does how does that really, does that work well? And people don't abuse that, and that's that's not a huge cost center? It's not. So we pay for, like, the, the plane ticket. We pay a few hundred dollars. And uh, mm. then when they're there, they sometimes rely on the hospitality of the other team members or connection they have. Um, to to actually stay there. That that is that really gives me something new to think about. Uh, and um, what about the onboarding process? You know, getting somebody acquainted with the culture, how you work, uh, some of these ideas. It seems like the the onboarding process maybe would be the time where you'd want people together. Yeah. So um, what's important is that you get to meet your the other people that are also onboarding because kind of you feel connected to them. So we do a GitLab 101s, which are sessions where they uh, ask questions to an executive. So it's not a presentation. It's just purely asking that executive questions. I do those and every C-level exec does those. It's also about getting to know the people in the company. So those those virtual coffee breaks really help there. And then for the rest, we want, just want to make it as efficient as possible. So you get an onboarding issue and there's uh, more than a hundred 
checkboxes on that of all the things that have to happen. Most of it you have to do yourself, but also the, the work that other people have to do for you, adding you to systems, that's visible. So you can check whether it's still coming up or whether people have done that. And then we have a great handbook of over a thousand pages that describes all the different processes in the company. You don't have to read all of that, but everything that relates to your function, you're expected to read. So mm. you can onboard without having to bother people with a lot of questions. Now, you say a great handbook. Now, didn't you earlier say that you work on the handbook? <laughs> yeah. So you might I, be biased. I make, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very biased towards the handbook because we've seen yeah, it work. That's a good idea. I like that idea. I'm, I, I, uh, I'll admit, I've never thought about creating a handbook, but I could really see the usefulness of it, especially yeah. if you're bringing on a lot of people pretty fast. Yeah, we're growing about 3x year over year, so it's really important that we can onboard new people. And people always say, look, I onboarded. And what was amazing was every time I had a question, people were so nice. And then I always think, yeah, that's because you have 10 times less questions because most things are documented already. So when there's yeah. few questions, it's easier to be receptive to them. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as somebody who uh, is just sort of getting acquainted with GitLab after the recent news. I've always been aware of it, but really getting acquainted now, it, it that gives me a confidence in the long-term structure of the company. It sounds like there's a real process for scaling, bringing new staff on and and, and keeping uh, keeping that going without derailing the company because that can be one of the hardest things with a company is bringing people on and getting that right. So I I I'm pretty positive about the future. You must be as well. You must be pretty you must be pretty positive about what the at least the next few years have for GitLab. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited. This year we're going to complete our vision of complete DevOps. So it used to be that GitLab was just version control and then it was just for developers. And now we're going to make sure that you can run the entire lifecycle all the way to up to deploying to production and monitoring in GitLab. We think that's going to bring so many advantages. Imagine you're rolling, you're pushing your code, it gets deployed, but then GitLab says you're sees that you're breaching a, serv a service level objective. It automatically rolls back the code and says, "Hey, something went wrong here." Or overnight, there's like Debian has a security update. It gets rolled out automatically, but we monitor it, and if it doesn't work, we roll it back. Like so, instead of babysitting deployments, you can do it all with GitLab and. Super yeah. excited by, by yeah. what we're trying, what we're doing there. So that's Auto DevOps, right? And that's going to be launching on June twenty second. That's next yeah, week. Yeah. So, so one feature I mentioned is Auto Revert. That's not yet in GitLab, uh, but that will be launching this year. It just really strikes me as a way to empower even uh, understaffed open source projects, people that are on GitLab now that maybe don't have all of the resources that larger projects might. This could help them get more done. So that's going to be a great feature. Yeah, spend less time on your tooling, spend less time on babysitting changes, spend more time on actually creating functionality. Yeah. Well, Sid, thank you very much for coming on. I'm sure these are very busy days for you. And so Mike and I both really appreciate you making time to come on the Coda Radio program. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Sid. Sid. Boy, that was great picking Sid's brain on the remote work stuff. I mean, very awesome hearing about GitLab and, and also very much looking forward to them launching Auto DevOps. But what do you think about his thoughts on the remote work stuff? Like they hundred percent remote work. You know what? I honestly, I was I was a, a little uh, cat got my tongue because I was thinking about what he was saying. I was like, can that really work? I, I might know, right? have to try it. Try yeah, it. I so, mean, we, 
yeah, some of that stuff, you know what, having the having having the team meetups, it makes a ton of sense. And if they're growing, as he said, 3x year over year, it's scaled up to what, 300 people? That's incredible to me. That's yeah. that's great. I'll put a link. Uh, he mentioned as we were saying goodbye that uh, that handbook is open source. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. So if you want uh, to grab it, you can go to coder.show slash 313 and we'll have a link to their handbook that they've put in the show. But Mike, I think that's probably it right there. I think uh, we should probably wrap it up. Uh, I'm going to be traveling with kids for the next weekends or so. So I don't really know what the recording schedule is going to be. So just the surefire bet is coder.show slash subscribe. Mike and I will work it out over uh, over the over the next few days. But when we do publish an episode, as long as you go to coder.show slash subscribe and subscribe from one of the ways there, you'll get every single episode that we put out. Mr. Dominic, where should people find you throughout the week? Follow me at Dumanuqua on Twitter. <clears throat> Boom! You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. And follow my journey home from Tejas at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover. Thanks so much for being here. And hopefully we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>